Hi there, esteemed audience, and welcome to another episode of Middle Grade Ninja. I'm your host, Rob Kent. As you know, I'm the author of Banneker Bones and the Giant Robot Bees, but I talk about that one every week and remind you that it's available as an audiobook, a paperback, and an ebook, which is free, yes, free to download whenever you're watching or listening to this. I don't talk nearly enough about the fact that I've written horror novels under the super secret pen name Robert Kent, and you can get the All Together Now, a zombie story, three guesses what that one's about, as well as Pizza Delivery, a classic and a favorite of mine. I never I never get tired of laughing at uh, the, a book called Pizza Delivery. Uh, and The Book of David, which is a five-volume serial horror novel uh, based loosely on Stephen King's The Shining, but, you know, with alien abduction and a whole lot of religious satire in a small Indiana town. And that is available as uh, a full omnibus or as five serial novels. And you can get the first part of that, The Book of David, Chapter One by Robert Kent, uh, as a paperback where the ebook is free. Yes, also free to download whenever you're watching or listening to us. So check out The Book of David by Robert Kent. If there's time, download your free copy of Banneker Bones and the Giant Robot Bees, and you're set. As always, for interviews with thousands of literary agents, authors, editors, publishers, all the world's best people, go to middlegradeninja.com. It will change your life. And enough intro. We've got so much show today. we got to get started. We've got Lane Haymont from the Tobias Literary Agency. Uh, Lane, how are you this morning? Good, good. Um, it's great to be here. Um, and... Oh, I was going to say something that I found interesting you were talking about, and I'm such a, I have squirrel brain, I don't even remember, despite the fact it was like three seconds ago. Well, I rambled on long enough that I, I assume half the audience stopped listening anyway, so <laughs> we're in good shape. Well, my uh, pledge to, to people is I never summarized anyone else's book or anyone else's biography. How miserable for you to have to sit there and listening to me doing either of those things. Uh, so probably a good place to get started is if you would give a esteemed audience kind of an overview of your background and we'll go from there. I think it's probably more miserable for me to listen to myself. Um, so... I'm a literary agent. I started off at the Seymour Agency back in 2012, 2011. Um, and as a literary assistant, worked my way up. Um, 2016, I branched out to form Tobias Literary Agency. Um, I have a bachelor's in I honestly don't remember. Um, it was, it's either liberal arts or psychology. Um, the moment I got my uh, degree, I lost it. And I have no interest in paying $50 for a new one. <laughs> and it was like literally. You how much to obtain it, but not $50 for the piece of paper. Yeah. Yeah, this was like 12, 13 years ago. So I'm like, I, I don't even remember. But um, yeah, so, you know, I'm from Boston, lived all over. Um, that's the story of me. Not that interesting. 
Well, I've read uh, a number of interesting anecdotes, starting with, I read that when you were eight years old, your your grandfather would give you $5 to read the classics, that $5 per book he was paying? Yes, $5 per book, and then we would have to discuss them. Um, and I remember he had me read Ivanhoe because, you know, I was a D&D nerd and he thought I would love it. And I was like, this is the worst book ever. He was very surprised by that. And I, I don't remember much else about our discussion. I just remember hating Ivanhoe and him being surprised by that. I was like, it's too long, too boring. Um, so yeah, that's the story. It's an ambitious read for an eight-year-old. Which is probably why I hated it. <laughs> I was trying to think for five dollars. Uh, I know when I was a kid, that would have bought you a Super Friends action figure. That was that was good money. Uh, I think yeah. you need like maybe 10, 15 bucks to, to pull that off today. What were you? What, were, what was the five dollar? What was what was the thing you were hoping to get? I don't think anything. I think it was just awesome to have five dollars. <laughs> it's funny because that's what my nephew does he hoards money for no reason just wants to have it i'm like yeah it's it's a good goal you know save your money i hoard money for video game characters which is like awesomely stupid like my video game character by the time they get to the end of the game they are set for retirement they're they're good <laughs> Good, good. Yeah, I started actually to splurge on myself. Now I'm looking for my, here it is, my Ahsoka Funko thing. Oh, you can't even see it because of the, that's interesting. Uh, maybe if you hold it. it in front of you. Uh, there we go. Oh, here we go. Ahsoka. So you must be counting down the moments until the Disney Plus series then. I am. I cannot wait for Kenobi. Um, Mandalorian was amazing. Loved it. Um, yeah, so I'm, I wish they'd come out sooner. Yeah, I watch uh, Rosario Dawson play Osoka all day long, and I'm sure eventually they'll reboot her, and whoever they reboot with will be excellent as well. But I'll keep, keep them coming. Yep, yep. Rosario Dawson as Ahsoka. That was amazing. Just finished Dope Sick. It's my favorite series, I think, of the year. And she is just incredible in it. Yeah, yeah. That's a good one, too. I'm not going to lie. I kind of teared up at the end. It was very just powerful. Evil Sacklers. It was, yeah. I mean, you know, I knew the broad outline of the story, but until they went through and, and you know, point by point evidence of evidence i there was a part of me that still held out faith that maybe the sacklers were just woefully misguided nope nope just that evil nope just that evil just that evil some people are bad at the core yeah unfortunately that that seems to definitively be the case and the fiction author in me always wants to find the the protagonist like vader-esque anakin skywalker qualities to everybody that oh no there was a good person in there all along and for all <laughs> I know, maybe richard so uh, richard sackler i almost say richard ahsoka richard sackler uh had always wanted to write an opera he had some wonderful untapped artistic thing within him and if we'd found if we could hear that opera we'd be like oh that's probably not gonna out cancel out all the evil you did but there was a little bit of nobility in there Hmm, interesting. So are you a Vader apologist? 
Um, yeah, so far. I mean, we'll see what happens with uh, <laughs> Obi-Wan Kenobi. Oh my, I'm like one of the few Vader apologists. Like, no, he's a good guy at heart. I mean, yeah, he murdered children and like conquered the galaxy and did all this evil stuff, but, you know. Well, theoretically, when he, spoilers for anyone who's not seen Star Wars, <laughs> um, but theoretically, when he blows up the Death Star, he uh, does way more good in the galaxy than, you know, a few murdered kids way back when. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. That is funny. Uh, and I had read that you had been writing uh, historical novels for a bit about the, the Civil War. Uh, oh, yes. I wrote a very bad novel a long time ago that is no longer, I hope, available, knock on wood. But, um, yeah, you know, those who do, do those who can't teach or agent. Um, I think most agents are either writers or wanted to be writers and failed out of that. Well, with your missing degree that was in psychology or, or liberal arts, if you had it, if you paid the 50 bucks, I better say it right there. Right? I paid enough for college, I'm not giving them another 50. <laughs> But did you have, uh, well, did you have like a clear ambition when you were young? I will definitely do this. Or were you just kind of enjoying life and figuring out as you went? Yeah, I always wanted to be a writer. Um, but other than that, I had no idea what I was doing. Um, when I went to college, my grandfather said, you're majoring in business. And I was like, oh, okay, you know, I guess I'm majoring in business. Um, and then I, I, I switched my major a number of times, which is why it may be difficult to remember exactly what it is. Um, and around 2009, I graduated and I was like, I'm going to sit down and write this novel. And it took a few years and I don't even remember when it came out, maybe 2000. 11 2012 um and you know it was with a small press and i thought it was the greatest thing since sliced bread and then i fell into the industry of agenting and all that jazz and you know looking back i was like it's probably not a very good novel let me pull it from the world it looks on paper like uh, like a straight line mid mid rise, because uh, I, I think but Nicole is it Rissatini your your mentor? Yes, uh, she did she told you to pursue your passion to be a literary agent? Is that kind of the story? Yeah, she absolutely basically forced my hand into it. Said you'd make a great agent, be an agent. I want you to be an agent. I was like, okay, I guess I'll be an agent. Um, I was very resistant at the beginning because I have great reverence for the job and writers in general. And I know it sounds corny and cheesy, but I mean, you're literally guiding someone along the path of their dream. Um, I mean, when you write a book, I know it's your baby. It's your blood, sweat, and tears. It's you on paper even if i mean you're writing characters that you hate that aren't like you i mean you're putting your blood sweat and tears into it 
and having had that experience of, of, of written your own, writing your own novel, I assume that gives you a, a direct insight into how much that meant to you while you were writing it, if not now. Yes, yes, absolutely. <laughs> My grandfather was the one who was like, yeah, you're not going to do it. It's very difficult. <laughs> I was like, oh, okay, so that means I have to do it. Um, so yeah, it took years and I did it. And I mean, the product wasn't that good, but I did it. And that's what matters to my, you know, little Jewish heart. Well, I've got some terrible novels on the, the shelf I'm looking at right now. Uh, it's just a graveyard of, of <laughs> dreams from young me. Uh, but on the uh, bones of those dreams, just like Anakin on the bones of those young Jedis he slaughtered, by God, built, <laughs> built up to a point where I can destroy a, a Death Star. That metaphor kind of fell apart. But the point is, <laughs> those, those, those experiences do translate and do stay with you and, and help you on to the next thing. Absolutely, absolutely. Which is, I, I think, where part of my reverence for writers and helping guide clients comes from because i know like you said i know what it's like so looking just on paper it looks like you you start with the seymour agency in, in 2012 and then by 2016 just four years later you're forming the tobias literary agency yes yes that must have been a heck of, of a four years what uh, what did you learn at the seymour agency that set you up to then go on and and and, and found your own successful agency Everything. Um, Nicole Restiniti is amazing in every way. Um, we're still besties, talk all the time. I can call her up for anything. She calls me up. Um, we have some stuff together. Um, and yeah, she taught me everything, brought me around, introduced me to editors and, you know, walked me through the fire. And so when you start with the agency, are you, are you an intern? Do they make you an associate agency agent? Yes. I started off as a reader. Um, I saw, I don't know if it's an ad or maybe like a tweet from uh, Marissa Cleveland, who is one of the most amazing people in the universe, um, looking for a reader. And I said, hey, I could do that. I could read books for a living or for fun. Um, so it was an internship, you know, free, non-paid reading. Um, and then I worked my way up to literary assistant. And then I stuck there for probably longer than I should have because I was very nervous and scared about being an agent. And Nicole finally, finally convinced me and I was like, okay, I'll be an agent. What was uh, scary? I, mean, I know obviously you have a great um, uh, respect for the, the role, but what, what made you nervous about the prospect of being one? Um, to be frank, I'm not a salesperson. I don't myself a salesperson in any way, shape, or form. I got, I wouldn't say fired, I got let go from a sales job um, for being horrible at it. So I was thinking, how the hell am I going to sell books? then, you know, I realize once you have the passion for something or you're in love with a book, I mean, all it is is telling someone about it, just pitching it. Whereas for me, I thought of sales as like what my brother does. You get on the phone, call random people. And for me, that sounds like a nightmare because I don't want to sell anyone something I don't believe in, which is why I got 
let go from my sales job. What were you, uh, what were you selling? I was working at the college bookstore and someone called and was like, how much is a school hoodie? And I was like, oh, it's $60. And the guy was like, oh, that's expensive. And I was like, yeah, man, that's capitalism. <laughs> and the <laughs> boss overheard and was like, oh, you should probably try to sell it. And I was like, oh, man. Okay. So, like, that night I talked to my girlfriend at the time. And she was like, oh, well, you could have said it's school spirit and supporting the school. And I was like, I'm not going to sell my soul for a piece of cloth that cost five cents and the school is selling for $60. Like, I'd rather let go than, you know, make that pitch. Good for you. Um, so that makes that makes sense. You um, you find a book, you believe in it, that makes that opens that up. And then it's not a question of selling your soul. You're 100% invested. Yes, yes. And, you know, sometimes I'm not wrong, but books don't sell. And book, I, I tried to sell books that haven't sold, and I'm still really mad at those books not selling. And I think eventually they will sell. If I go back, if I have the chance to go back five years later, the book may sell like wildfire. And that's just the way the industry works. Like when I first started, I wanted to do horror all the way in, but publishing editors, they all said, no, no one wants horror. Horror doesn't sell well. There's only old white guys in the horror and that's all that'll ever sell. And I was like, oh, these people, they're missing out. They don't know what they're talking about. And then when Get Out came out, suddenly everyone wanted horror. And I was like, yes, I told you all. I told you so. Um, so I had read, was it, uh, you were, you got your first sale at the Seymour Agency within about four or six months, somewhere insanely early in the process? Yes. Um, I think it was to Harlequin Intrigue. Um, because Seymour Agency does a lot of romance. So I just happened to fall into a lot of romance. Um, so my first sale was to Harlequin Intrigue, um, romantic suspense. Um, and I think that was really, really, really early. Um, most agents I've learned, you know, their first sale is a year. And I think I just lucked out. I think it was just dumb luck, which is, you know, I hate to say a lot in the industry. It's timing and dumb luck. I mean, it's very frustrating, but honest. Yeah, yeah, it's really frustrating. Um, I've had books rejected because editors come back and say, oh, I just bought a similar book two weeks ago. I'm like, oh, mother. <laughs> I swear. It was just like, oh, man, timing. Uh, two weeks. I mean, if you had a, like, then you have to go back like, man, if I just submitted, you know, two weeks before, three weeks before, could it could yeah. be? <laughs> yep, exactly. And it's a kick in the stomach, but, you know, what can you do? I had an agent way back when, when I was submitting, and she was my, my dream agent. And she literally took on, uh, just before me, a book about a young boy who invents robots similar to Banneker Bones, and then a young adult novel about zombies. I was like, oh, come on. <laughs> yep. 
Yeah, that should have been me a month earlier. Ah, (laughs) it's just dumb luck. Yeah. So, with getting that first sale that early in, does that give you the confidence then to start more aggressively selling? How does that impact you and set you up for future success? Um, I think it's a double-edged sword because you know I have the imposter syndrome where I'm like, oh man, that was just dumb luck. Dumb luck. That's not going to happen again. So then, I mean, I I think being doubted or even doubting yourself is great motivation to go hard. Um, And that's what I did. And it took a while. Just like I think most agents, it takes a while. Um, And then eventually, you know, once you get the swing of things and you've been in it for a few years you build a list of great authors you find great projects you sometimes you have to go out hunting for great projects um and then you know i think most people find the swing of it or they move on to other stuff i mean agenting unless you're at one of the big mega corporations it's not salary i mean you make you earn a living off of what you sell. And in order to do that, you have to come from a certain privileged background. So, I mean, it's not an easy life or an easy job. Well, we heard about your your sweet $5 per book uh, when you were eight. Um, would, you, would you describe yourself as coming from a privileged background? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, number one, I'm a cishet white dude. Number two, um, I come from a, I don't want to say wealthy family, but, you know, a family of doctors and lawyers and yada, yada, yada. So, I mean, I, I could work those however many years I did for free. I mean, obviously, I, I had a part-time job. I was a medical coder, which is the most mind job mind numbing job in the universe um but yeah i definitely come from privileged background absolutely so when you start at the seymour you're you're coding in the background part-time and then what's your week look like and you're working completely free with the hope of your yep there's free internship I, i i think that's how most or at least up until however long ago new york said you have to pay interns um, and that's only in New York. Um, but yeah, it was free and I did it for the love of it and for the experience and with the goal of growing into some other type of role. Um, and it was absolutely worth it and I would do it again. Um, but yeah, I was medical coding in the background. Um, and I, I mean, for me, I considered medical coding the side gig as opposed to, you know, reading and interning and all that. That was my full-time job. I didn't get paid, and medical coding was the paying gig, but, you know, my heart laid in the industry. And you're, I mean, you're in New York City, right, trying to pay rent during that time? No, not at all. Okay. I was living at home at that point because... You know, medical coding is not a fun job, and it's not the best-paying job. Um, but yeah, 
okay. So medical coding, you're doing that most most every day for what, like four hours a day, and then you switch over to agenting or? Yeah, I, I mean, back then I wasn't an agent. I was the literary assistant intern. And, you know, medical coding was basically my full-time job and assisting was my part-time job. But I think like most agents do now, you read queries when you can, when you have the time and the rest of the time you're working for your clients. So when do you get to the point where you can kiss medical coding goodbye? Or are you still doing that? <laughs> oh, hell no. I, I kissed them goodbye years ago. Um, I don't know. I think it depends for every agent. You know, the saying is you have to do it for five years before you see any profit. Um, and for me, that wasn't the experience. But again, I, I came from a very privileged background where if I wanted to do something full-time for free, I could have done that. And that leads me to believe, and I, I could be wrong, but that uh, a majority of literary agents uh, are not cold calculated, oh, five years from now, I'm going to get that, that sweet, sweet money. You know, I mean, they could be, they could be selling drugs for the Sackler family there. They're focused on, on books and passion, right? Yes, I think most agents are for books and passion. Um, and I mean, I can't say everyone because there's a-holes out there like the Sacklers. Um, and, you know, some are all about that money. Some are all about that passion. And sometimes you have to be both. I mean, it's a business. Oh, it's... Um... So four years in, you decide to found the Tobias Literary Agency. And I know you're still friends with everybody uh, at the Seymour Agency as you're moving over. So what does founding, why, why is that the time to found your own agency? And what does founding your own agency allow you to do that you can't do at the Seymour Agency? Um, frankly, I can do whatever I want. <laughs> well, I mean, that's, that's literally the difference. I can do whatever I want. Um, I mean, at Seymour, I, I have to check with the bosses. I have bosses. We all have bosses. But, you know, here at Tobias, I can I can do whatever I want. Um, I can fire someone. I can have a retreat. I can tell people go on vacation. And it has nothing to do with anyone else other than I just get to do whatever I want. I mean... I was never a corporate nine to five person. And I mean, even at Seymour, nowhere, I don't think it's a nine to five job unless you're in corporate America at CAA or, you know, one of those mega corporations. But um, yeah, that's it. I just get to, to do whatever I want, whenever I want it. Um, and, you know, I think most agents are able to set their own schedules, knock on wood, I'd like to think. Um, but yeah. So yeah. what, uh, what does your ideal schedule look like? Um, I think part of the attraction is not having one. 
Fair enough. That, you know, if I want to wake up at 11 a.m., I can wake up at 11 a.m. Because, you know, I have a program that lets me schedule emails. So the night before I send something out, I'll schedule the email for 8 a.m. the next morning. So maybe I can sleep in till nine and know that email went at eight, went out at 8 a.m. So that Great. makes my job a lot easier. What's the name of the program for anybody that wants to do likewise? Let me look it up. Oh, okay. <laughs> Let me go to, what is this? Oh, okay. It's on my Chrome because Safari won't use it. Um, I'm looking it up right now. It is... Um, okay, it's called Banana Tag. Very cool. So I'll let you schedule all the emails. So if you feel inspired to get caught up at 3 a.m., you can do that. Schedule them all to go out in the morning and then you sleep until whenever you feel like getting up and getting back to it. Yep. Yep. I, I, I can't express how much banana tag has helped my life. And I only learned about scheduling emails from another agent years ago, and I'm not remembering his name. And I feel bad I don't remember his name because I'd like to give him credit. Yeah, I can't remember. Well, I assume that's good because if or one, one, or one benefit of that, I assume, uh, is that if you've got an author that you want to say something encouraging, like, hey, do, do this bit of a rewrite, and you schedule it for 9 or 10 a.m., even though you wrote it at nine o'clock, if you send it at nine o'clock and the and the writer is up and oh, oh my gosh, you're interested, let me respond immediately with five questions. Whereas if you hold on to it the next day, that maybe cuts down on that a little bit. Yes, yes. And I really love it because I'm able to send submissions to editors 8 a.m., 9 a.m. So I'm the first one in their inbox. And, you know, I'm such a nerd. I did a little experiment of my own. And that's the best time to do it. 8 a.m. You get the most responses. Really? Yes. And I saw a Twitter discourse a while ago. Editors saying, no, you need to send it at 10 a.m. That's the best time. But not according to my quote unquote research. I get the most responses 8 a.m. Well, 10 a.m. sounds dangerously close to, to lunch. Mm. See, I'm not in corporate America anymore, so I don't know. <laughs> it's true. You're having lunch whenever you feel like it. <laughs> I'm having lunch whenever I feel like it. <laughs> One of the uh, reasons uh, I was uh, so keen to talk with you, um, a number of reasons, but one reason, an esteemed audience can go back and listen to episode 139 of Well Worth Your Time, Esteemed Audience. I had your client, Diana Rodriguez Wallach, on here. Uh, talking about her absolutely phenomenal book, Small Town Monsters. We talk about cults in America, horror for the YA market. Just an incredible conversation. But she talked uh, specifically about you and some other agents that she'd had. And she'd, she'd had some agents that she'd talked to that were very friendly, that she could see herself, you know, going out with. I think she said and having a glass of wine in there. And they could talk about their kids and, and just have a wonderful friendship. But she was more interested in finding somebody uh, like you, he just said that you are, uh, quote, super business, uh, very into 
into business and that you were able to uh, sell her on her own book. That's how excited you were for Small Town Monsters and to lie out all the things you wanted to do for it. And that you were actually uh, pitching to film agents simultaneously. Is that right? Yes, absolutely. Um, a lot of agents or the word on the street is you don't pitch to film agents until you have a deal. Um, and having being friends with film agents, um, I mean, everyone says, no, that's not the way it works. You, we want it so simultaneous, simultaneously. And, you know, Small Town Monsters had a film agent before we had a book deal. Um, and I think that also helped sell the book. We had uh, signed an option for Proof of Lies, one of her previous books. Yes. Before that as well, is that right? Yes, absolutely. That's a great series. I'm super glad we got a film option for it. And I think, knock on wood, that'll go forward at some point. So... Well, I want to I want to break down uh, some of that because that just sounds like which which when when you watch uh, or listen to episode one thirty nine, esteemed audience, you're going to see the way Diana Rodriguez Wallach uh, just lights up talking about you and, and what you were able to do for the book. And I want to know a little bit more about um, what everyone else who's going to be sending you queries can can look forward to uh, at the Tobias Literary Agency. So probably a good spot to start is the types of projects that you're looking for. What are what is it you're interested in right now? Right now, I am super duper all about the horror. That's always been my passion, always been my love. Um, I started off wanting to do sci-fi fantasy, fell into romance. Um, I, I never had success with sci-fi fantasy, straight up, honestly. Um, never did it very well. My focus was romance. Now it's horror and serious nonfiction. Um which is a weird kind of mix, but I'm still looking for psychological horror. Um, and again, serious nonfiction. I like history, science, um, anything unique and oddball. So psychological horror as opposed to um, really violent. Yes, yeah, slashers. Um, straight up creature features, um, that kind of stuff. Like, uh, I read Clown in a Cornfield, and it's not something I probably would have offered on, but I love the book. It's a great book. Um, and part of agenting is knowing what you can champion and what you can't. Um, and I've had books come in the slush pile that I'm like, this is going to get six figures. It's going to be a huge deal, but it's not for me. And, you know, I've been right more than I've been wrong. And this is just a question. It won't get six figures with me because I'm not passionate enough to go out there and, and sell it. Uh, this is just a $60 hoodie to me, or? <laughs> <laughs> I, I, th I think it's a $60 hoodie to me, but recognizing that it's not a $60 hoodie. Just because something I'm not passionate about has nothing to do with its worth or its value or its saleability. I mean, I, I hated Ivanhoe, and that's Ivanhoe. Everybody loves Ivanhoe, you know? I'm just the schmuck who didn't like it, pardon my French. 
or Yiddish? I was trying to think. What's that? I'm trying to think. What's that stupid book that everyone always raves about that I think I can't? Uh, it's not Odysseus. It's um, oh shoot! It's on the tip of my tongue and it's it's gone. Uh, it's about a week, but uh, forget it. Never mind. It's gone. <laughs> let's, let's move on. I'll, just, I'll edit that embarrassing fumble out later. <laughs> um, but uh, talking about horror, uh, are you uh, obviously you represented small town monsters? So YA horror is very much on the table. If I had like a middle grade, the new, the new manicula that I want to send to you, is that something that would also be of interest? Um, I'm open <laughs> to middle grade horror mainly because it's horror not because it's middle grade um my colleague <laughs> natasha morris and i are always passionately discussing whether i represent ya because you know i do ya horror ya thrillers and she says no that's ya and i'm like nope it's horror thrillers because if you sent me a um the sun is also a star which i love I, I, I'd be like, I don't know what the hell to do with this. I mean, I, yeah, I could send it to people and all that jazz, but I mean, I, I don't consider myself a kid-lit person. Natasha's the kid-lit person. She's the director of our kid-lit department. I like the dark, the gritty, um, the oddball, the serious. Not that kid-lit isn't serious. Um but yeah, I don't see myself as repping kidlit, despite the fact I represent a number of YA authors. Uh, Ulysses, by the way, is the the, the brain fart that I. Uh, that's the book I was. Oh, certain, okay. That I passionately hate because you're not reading a story. You are doing a crossword puzzle, and it's calling itself literature. But I understand that lots of people are interested. You get it. You get hating the classics. I've had several professors tell me, Rob, what are you, you're missing out, man. This is so amazing. I'm like, well, I'm, I'm glad you feel that way, but this is, this is, this is a brain teaser. If that's what you wanted to do, fine. There's whole books of them, but this is, <laughs> give me a story. <laughs> it sounds like you're Beowulf. Beowulf <laughs> gets like slammed for being the most boring, idiotic classic ever. And I remember, um, oh, I can't believe I ever got the guy's name, but the 13th warrior. There was a bet between the author and some friend that said, you can't make Beowulf interesting because it's the most boring thing ever. So the author wrote Death Eaters, which became the 13th Warrior. That's Michael Creighton, yeah? Michael Creighton, yes. There you go. That's his name. Yes, exactly. And he was right. That was a really thrilling book. <laughs> yeah, it was. It was a great book and a great movie. Yeah, I... Missed I know the movie had Antonio Banderas. I think I saw like part of it. Yep, great movie. Um, it's a relic group of Neanderthals, which is pretty cool. Well, now I went through that phase in high school where you know, shortly after Jurassic Park, like everybody else, I read everything Michael Creighton had ever written. Yep, and let me just mainline that. <laughs> yep. Yep. There's a few disappointments in there, but not many. <laughs> I mean, when you write a lot, you're going to have some misses. Hits, hit and miss, you know? It's the way life is. 
that led me to something else I wanted to, that leads me to something else I wanted to ask you about. So you had a quote, uh, you tell your clients ABW to always be writing, uh, that if you have to write 10 books before you land an agent or a deal, then do it. The only difference between published and unpublished author is persistence. So that led me to wonder, uh, how many books can I write in a year and be said to always be to, to, to be following that ABW? Depends. I mean, you can write one book. You can write no books as long as you're always writing. I mean, whether it's short stories or novels or poems. Um, I mean, if you're writing, you're doing your job. And I say that a lot because if I submit a book to an editor, the editor may say, this book isn't for me, but send me the next thing. What else do they have? And I want to be able to say, here's what they have, as opposed to, well, they could have another book in two years. You know, I want to be able to tell them about something. Gotcha. And even if all I've got for you is, um, I don't know, a, a proposal with maybe a sample chapter, is that enough for you to say to the editor, this is definitely come, maybe sort of coming soon? Yes. If you're a published author, I can do that. So for Diana Rodriguez Wallach, now that she's a, she's a published author, I can send her editor a couple chapters and a synopsis as a proposal, and they can buy off that. If she weren't with those editors, I'd have a lot, it'd be more difficult to sell on proposal. And when I try to sell on proposal, you know, they always say, oh, when's the full coming? So I like to go out, and I think most agents do, with a full manuscript. Makes our jobs a lot easier, makes it a lot easier for the editors, and all that good jazz. So even if somebody's got the perfect horror uh, idea in their mind, they're like, this is going to be perfect for Lane Haymont until they've got the full manuscript if they're an unpublished author, don't bother with the query, right? Yeah, don't bother with it. It's just going to annoy the hell out of me because I'm going to be like, oh, I love this premise. I want to read it. And then there's only 30 pages. And I'm like, I, I can't sell 30 pages. I mean, if you're Stephen King, I can sell two pages. I can sell a paragraph. But, you know you're unpublished, yet proven, I can't sell you. I think if Stevie King just has a, a, a dream about a story, he wakes up to another million dollars in his bank account. <laughs> There's this funny scene, I think it's Family Guy, where it's one of those cutaways, and it's Stephen King pitching a book to a publisher, and he's saying, oh, look, a lamp monster, arr, arr. and the guy's like, have it to me and on my desk next week. <laughs> I think there's another family cutaway where he, he you know, he, tasteless as always uh, on Family Guy. He gets hit by the car, and as he's in the air, he types another novel before he lands. Yeah, but he lands. He's like done. <laughs> I think for all he, I know, that might be true. <laughs> I think it was The Shining, maybe he wrote. No, because The Shining was in the seventies. Oh, maybe it was Misery. I don't remember. Uh, that he wrote... Um... Oh, after he got hit by a car. He was oh. hit by a car and was laid up for however long. And I think that's when he wrote Misery. Yeah, I'm not sure. I know he wrote... He got in a hurry to finish the Dark Tower series right after that. 
And okay. now I'm annoyed because, of course, he's living well, well into uh, his golden years. And man, if you had just slowed down, you probably could have done a little bit better with my favorite fantasy series that sort of derailed itself when you rushed through to the ending. <laughs> yeah. You know, sometimes it happens. <laughs> I understand the sentiment, not wanting to, to leave it unfinished, but I wish that he had just like, okay, well, there's definitely an ending, and if I die, they'll find it, but maybe I'm just going to put it on the shelf for, for a decade and then revisit it and see if I still want uh, my my big bad Walter O'Dim to just be eaten by a baby. Maybe, maybe the man in black gets a better exit than that. Spoilers. <laughs> I think maybe people don't want to be a Herman Melville. You know, where you die unnamed, they misspell your name in the obituary, which I think is actually a myth, and then you're not famous until 100 years later. Well, I assume that's what's going to happen to me. I assume the moment I'm dead, every every book that I've ever written will become famous beyond my, my wildest dreams. And if not, Back I'll... on wood. <laughs> Either way. Here's hoping. <laughs> <laughs> if there is an afterlife i'm not wasting it looking back on earth and like are they reading my books like no nah, let me we go on to find something else to do true that true that i just had an all new experience i gotta write a new book about this you'll read it when you get here right there you go so uh, I know that uh, for anybody that wants to reach out to you, there's, they can go to your website, uh, the, the Tobias Literary Agency, and you've got um, the, is it the query tracker that you're using? Query manager. Query manager. Query tracker is the website. Yeah, it's really helpful for finding agents. The query manager, they can go through, they fill out that form. So when you when you are feeling inspired to look at queries, because you've said that that that. And uh, you um, are genuinely calmed and you enjoy going through queries. Is that right? Yes, I do. Um, I mean, I do it when I have a moment and, you know, it's, it's you find talent in there. I found some pretty incredible authors in my query manager. Um, yeah, I mean, it's just digging through and I'm sure I'm going to get a lot of comments but you know through the slush because everyone wants to be a writer and not everyone can be i couldn't be a writer i mean i failed out of it i think it's a natural extension of just enjoying reading uh, when, yeah. it's, when it's done right when it's i'm just going to i hope they make this into a movie but instead of writing the screenplay i'll write the book don't waste anyone's time but i think that if you read enough books sooner or later in the back of your mind you you want to sit down and, and write a novel and you should yeah absolutely absolutely now, should you send it to lane hey mom well that's that's a different <laughs> <laughs> will it get published that's a different story i mean some people just write for the you know giggles of it and that's perfectly fine. I mean, you know, I like uh, playing video games. It doesn't mean I'm going to go design a video game. I don't even know how computers work, so <laughs> they wouldn't even begin to work. What's your uh, favorite video game? Or some favorites? Um, I'm going to date myself, but Halo. Um, I mean, I haven't played a video game in years and years and years and years. Um, I think I have my Xbox over there. I don't even know if it still works. 
Well, maybe uh, you set your own schedule. Maybe pick a time this week. <laughs> no, don't do that. You've got you've got too much agenting to do. That will just suck away time. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and there's something about playing video games that depresses me. I don't know what it is, but if I play a video game for too long, I'm like, oh my god, I feel so sad. <laughs> like I, I think for me, it's like wasted time. Despite the fact I love video games and grew up playing video games. Fair enough. So when you're looking through your, your query manager and your what what kind of thing is going to catch your eye? What are you hoping to find? Um, serious nonfiction, science, true crime, less so true crime now since no one seems to want to buy it despite the fact film audiences can't get enough of it. Um, and horror, psychological horror um, that delves into the darker side of humanity. I mean, we're all flawed, messed up people, and I think the scariest stuff is the stuff that really happens. Like, I can watch a thousand horror movies about ghosts and demons and yada yada and be fine. But there's a movie, Lake Mungo, I think that's what it's called, about a girl who goes missing, and it's basically all interviews with the parents. And it, I mean, just like the human centipede, those kind of movies, they're, they're too real for me. I can't handle that stuff. And so um, yeah, human centipede still, still gives me nightmares. Um, mostly because I watched the sequels, uh, and those those are just nightmare films. Like, why? There's no artistic merit to the Human Centipede two. You already had it once. Why are you watching? Why did you do that to yourself, Rob? <laughs> I, I just can't. I haven't even watched it because I know it. I won't be able to handle it. You're better off just the original one. It's, it's all you need, and, and a lot of people probably don't even need that much. So uh, you're looking at, at your query manager. So you find something. It's the perfect psychological horror thriller. Um, you know that, that, that that's caught your attention. What else are you evaluating when you're looking at that? How are you going to evaluate the author to see whether or not this is somebody that's worth reaching out to? Um, I know a lot of agents Google the author beforehand, and that's something I should probably do, but I usually don't. It's just the writing, um, the plot, the voice um if i fall in love with something i'm gonna be like hey man i want to talk um i mean if you committed i don't know wire fraud 10 years ago i i don't care it's not my business i care about the book the story um i mean look at some of the best writers i mean i think creatives in general are bananas they're all insane you know, Sylvia Plath, Hemingway, Van Gogh. Um, so I just look at the story, the voice, um, and that. That's all that matters to me. So if you contact the author and they're, they're screaming and they, they direct you to their website that's, uh, I don't know, just... Uh, wildly, uh, just the craziest stuff you would ever want to read uh, on the internet, which which would be saying something. Fine, fine. I expect you to be nuts. What a story, though. Let's let's make this happen. <laughs> no, not, not, 
<laughs> some, some people, you, I don't want to work with. Um, I know crazy isn't the right word. I don't want to work with unstable. Um, I mean, I want to work with someone who it's their job. They write. Um, I mean, if you're on Twitter ranting and raving about reptilian aliens in the government, <laughs> that's, that's not my bag. I mean, that's not something I'm going to handle because, I mean, it is a business. Straight up, it's a business. It's on Alice Walker. Oh, cheap yeah. shot. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Not to knock Alice Walker, you know, all that. But, yeah, I mean, it, it's a business. And unless you're Stephen King, you, you, you know, be cool online. Just, you know, try not to piss other people off. Especially now that, you know, publishers are including moral clauses because people being ridiculous online. So with, with morality, with moral clauses, um, how are you navigating those and how are you advising your clients to, to navigate around those? Um, so most moral clauses try to include wording that says anything offensive or problematic. And I always strike those because, you know, what I find offensive may not be offensive to someone else. And what may be offensive to someone else isn't offensive to me. I mean, that's too subjective. Um, I care about legalities. You know, if you commit murder, yeah, okay, your publisher, <laughs> you know, has the right to be like, we're canceling your book. Um, and, I mean, I know I may get flack for it too, but I think publishers have the right to do that because they're private corporations. I mean, I, I can't buy into the whole canceling thing because, I mean, you have the right to say what you want, and I have the right to respond how I want. Um, but, you know, it's very, it's a fine line, because if you say, I believe in Atlantis, and someone finds that offensive, should you lose your book deal? Should the publisher be able to say, we don't support people who believe in Atlantis? So, and I mean, you get in a lot of trouble because people take, people are passionate. They don't want to work for a company that publishes Mike Pence or publishes Tucker Carlson or Joe Biden. I mean, everyone's different. So I think moral clauses are dangerous, but I understand, I mean, publishers are businesses. They have to protect their business. I mean, all the higher ups, they're all, Wall Street fat cats who probably haven't read a book in 20 years. They just know how to make money in publishing or in a business or not even that? In a business in general. I mean, you know, CEOs switch industries all the time, switch companies all the time. Um, I mean, the CEO of Publisher A for all we know, came from, you know, Wells Fargo. Just the nature of business. People, I read somewhere, people switch careers 
seven times in their life. So, you know, who knows where, what industry someone's coming from. I'm coming from medical coding. Medical coding has nothing to do with publishing. So those are the people that are, those are the people that are making the money decisions as opposed to the people who are making the acquisition decisions, the people that are actually doing the editing. Presumably those are, yes. those are book oriented people. Yes. Um, I mean, just like any business, publishers are corporate America. HarperCollins isn't just HarperCollins. It's the subsidiary of News Corp that does thousands of different things. Um, just like, uh, Simon and Schuster was part of Viacom CBS. Um, I mean, they're all massive conglomerates that go back decades, if not hundreds of years. So, what uh, what limitations does that impose on you, and what opportunities does that open up? Um, limitations, uh, I think. I mean, publishers, they each have their own persona and brand, and it's hard to get around or break that. And opportunities, I mean, I think in life, it's very much who you know and when you know them. For example, a Weinstein company, I, I forget the name of the publisher. It was Weinstein's imprint. And he got in trouble because, you know, people who would do favors for him, he'd like give them a book deal and they would get book deals. And there's been interviews with editors who edited those books that are like, yeah, these are garbage. There's no reason that these books should have been published. But it was Weinstein, his imprint, and he said, publish it. And, you know, Weinstein wasn't the nicest guy, to say the least. Oh, I read. <laughs> <laughs> A monster of a human being. And plants. Uh, yeah. mo monstrous to humans and to plants. Watch out uh, for Harvey Weinstein. <laughs> but, you know, I mean, if you're an editor and you're, you've are you got a nice job and a position and, you know, you don't know all of that about Harvey Weinstein at the time, he's the producer of all your favorite movies, all the, all the big Oscar-winning films. Yeah. There's a clip. I forget where it's from that a producer stands up and says, I'm a producer, a very important person to a very small number of people. And I think that's absolutely true because you probably have no idea who produced um, Forrest Gump. But that person put together Forrest Gump. You just had no idea who the hell they are. Yeah. Well, I mean, and even if, um, well, I assume by the time you get all the way out to the, I'm sure there were, there was a whole uh, cadre of people around Weinstein enabling his behavior. But I think by the time you get all the way out to the publisher on another coast who is editing books by his idiot celebrity friends, um, then that's, that's somebody who's trying to make a living in books. I, I don't know that I would disparage them because of, of his. Oh, no, it has nothing to do with the editors at all. Yeah. Nothing to do with the editors. Editors are, I don't want to say grunts, but on the front line. I mean, they're in it like agents for the passion of it. No one goes into publishing for riches. It's because they love books. They love editing. Um, and it has nothing to do with the business higher ups, which is why you'll see a lot of protests. Like, um, 
you know, walkouts and that kind of thing, which is what happened, you know, Woody Allen's book got um, slashed and ended up at Skyhorse because the editor said, no, we don't want to be involved with the company that publishes this crap by this person. I mean, editors are amazing. I'm besties with editors. Well, in, a, in a situation like we're in currently, where there's what there's four major publishers at this point, yes. um, and they're all large enough that they're going to have connections to some sort of Weinstein type individual. I mean, just yeah. by the virtue of the fact there's only four of them, and there's yep. there's a lot of bad people out there. Yep, big business. Um, big business is full of big bads. I think any industry is. So, well, how? Uh, we put on our, our, our futurist caps. Where do you see this going? Are we going to see three and then two and then everybody's being published by Disney and that's it? Or <laughs> what do you think? I look forward think to? left unfettered, that's where we're heading. Um, but, you know, the DOJ, I, I think, is doing their job and jumping in to try to defeat the Penguin Random House Simon and Schuster merger because for that very reason it will be a monopoly and conglomerate of epic proportions and you know I'm sure some people may be miffed that I'm saying DOG is doing a good thing but I mean I think they're doing a good thing I think it stifles fair competition and the exchange of ideas. And, you know, they'll always say, oh, they'll be separate. They'll be separate. But that's just business jargon. They're not going to be separate. Um, I mean, Harlequin and HarperCollins, they're not separate. HarperCollins and Houghton Mifflin, they're not going to be separate. They're already not. We, we've already, we've had that conversation in the industry. They are not going to be separate. Just because the editors are going to go back and forth and, and work for both, or how are they going to merge? Yeah, I mean, editors are going to acquire across imprints. Um, it's the same. It's the same company, same parent company. That's same business, same organization. For example, we opened up Tobias Literary Management to do scripts. We're the same company. I mean, that's its own department and. Eric Jones, the head of that, he makes his own decisions, but it's the same company. Gotcha. So you're, at the end of the day, you're all in the same room talking about yep. what the different sides of the business are doing. Yep. Absolutely. Same company, different department, but, you know, it's the way the business world works. So for authors, does that, I mean, I'm assuming that limits a little bit where they can be submitting, because if Harper-Collins said no, does that in, in, by default mean that Harlequin said no also? Um, yes and no. I mean, you can submit to Harper-Collins and Harlequin, so there is separation in that sense, um, but it does absolutely limit where you can go. I mean, where there were five publishers, now there's four. Because Penguin Random House melded together. So if I submit to an editor at Penguin, that editor may also acquire across Random House. 
or various other imprints. So, I mean, the landscape is shrinking. It's making it more difficult for authors, making it more difficult for us, for editors. The only people who are, you know, benefiting are the fat cat Wall Street CEOs. Gotcha. And so getting back to the, the morality clause, if it's somebody like that that's making the decision, it's not a question of what's the book about, what did the author say? It's did that potentially harm our profits? Get out of here. Was that? Oh, moral? yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. That's why, I mean, people, they still publish Tucker Carlson and Mike Pence, because who cares if they're an a-hole or they promoted the insurrection? It's about the dollars, because it's a business. Well, I mean, before America crashes and burns, there is a lot of money that could be made. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's a lot of money to be made. And it's just, it's the nature of the beast. It's the nature of business. Um, I mean, look at the Sacklers. They made billions off of dead people. And they're going to make billions off declaring bankruptcy and losing Purdue Pharma. They're going to walk away at $10 billion. And... <laughs> That's a lot of money. I, I'd like $10 billion. Yeah. Every month. I, I mean, not, not at the expense of, uh, <laughs> of the devastation. No, no, no. <laughs> I would not want $10 billion if 400,000 people had to die. If you can swap me with, with Richard Sackler and whatever lab they grew him from where you don't have that fear, that tug at your heart that bothers you at all, you can get a lot of evil accomplished if, if, if that's not holding you back. You could, but I mean, I, I, I'm a firm believer you can succeed without being an a-hole, pardon my French, um, which is what I try to do. I'm not a perfect person. I'm sure some people out there think I did them dirty, but, you know, I, I try to be a mensch, try to do the best I can, um, and I think that's all you can do. What's that look like uh, in terms of, for, for the Tobias Agency, what does being a mensch uh, look like in terms of how you're treating authors and, and, and what you're doing? Um, you know, we want to be upfront and honest. Um, some agents, when they sign someone, will say, you'll make $100,000 this year. Um, and that's not something I say or I let our agents say. Um I mean, I tell people, I love your book. I'm going to go hard for this. I'm not afraid to beat a dead horse, but I can't guarantee anything. Um, I'll say, you know, I think we can get a six-figure deal for this. I feel it in my bones, but I can't guarantee anything. I can't guarantee tomorrow the sun will rise. So, I mean, I believe in being as upfront as possible. Um, and I believe in... Like, for example, you know, we've run into drama with anti-trans uh, people in the organization that we had to excise from our company. Um, and it had nothing to do with quote-unquote social justice warriors or people coming for us. It's just something I didn't want to be around. It has nothing to do with anything other than that's not my bag. I'm not. I believe everyone should be able to do and feel however the hell they want. And I'm allowed to react to that however the hell I want. Pardon my French. 
So going back to what you're looking for in an author, we'll accept a little bit crazy. You could be a bit of Sylvia Plath and put your head in the oven. But if you're out there posting anti-trans nonsense, not not at the Tobias Literary Agency, keep looking. Yes, yes. Um, I mean, I've had people posting political stuff I don't agree with, and that's fine. But I've had people post lunatic conspiracy theories that I'm just like, no, cut the crap. I, I don't want you out there posting that there are reptilians in the government, you know, putting microchips in our brains. <laughs> it looks, number one, that that's bonkers. And then it makes me look bonkers that I'm representing you. Yeah, but how are you going to look when the reptilians microchip all our brains and you could have warned people? <laughs> I'll pie on my face, man, and I'll admit, I'll be the first one to be like, yeah, I messed up. Reptilians are replacing our brains of computers. <laughs> you were right. I was wrong. My bad. <laughs> I had to swallow that pill. Not with reptilians, but I've taken books out with um, titles that I chose that the author said, well, I like this one. I said, let's try mine. And then the publisher's like, no, we like the original title. I'm like, I, I was wrong. My bad. You were right. <laughs> I screwed up. <laughs> well, how, uh, how involved are you editorially um, when you get a submission? I think I'm very involved. Um, you know, I like, I, I was about to say conspiring, but not conspiring, but working together with an author on, you know, developing a project, making sure it's the best it can be. Um, and I want an open communication. So sometimes an author will say, no, I want it this way. I'm like, all right, it's your baby. I can't, you know, kidnap your baby and turn it into a monster that it's not. Um, but I, I think it's a give and take. And sometimes, you know, authors come up with much better ideas than I had. Sometimes I help come up with much better ideas. It's a give and take. And you have to be able to communicate and negotiate it's like any relationship gotcha so if the author comes to you and says you know i've got um i've got my line in the the sand or my you know th th these particular things about this story cannot change but i'm flexible on these things is that a reasonable starting position or no it's all got to be flexible if we're going to be successful with this i think most things have to be flexible but saying that, everyone has their lines in the sand. I have lines in the sand. And that has sexual assault or racial slurs. It's just not my bag, not something I want to be associated with. Um, and that's just me. Um, so I had to say, I'm not sending this out with these slurs in there. And people say, oh, you're censoring me. I'm like, no, I'm not censoring you. It's just I personally am not going to do that. I think you can show racism and hate in a book without having to write those words. Seems reasonable. And you can go out and start your, your own website and do all the slurs you want on it. You just won't be represented by Lane Haymont whilst you do it. Exactly. Exactly. You know? And I'm sure some people have things that I'm okay sending out that they don't want to. Okay. So like, uh, you're okay sending out, oh, okay. So like just things about 
about certain topics that you would be comfortable yeah. with. Okay. Yep. Like a lot of people are perfectly fine sending out books with animals getting killed. Not me. I don't want to see any more dead dogs in horror. In fact, I want to see like a eerie Indiana episode where the animals take over. All the humans die and the animals are like, nope, we're the heroes. Only humans die in this horror novel. That doesn't exist. I'm sure somebody is writing it as we speak and they'll be uh, putting it in your query manager directly. I hope so. <laughs> uh, and then a question that I, I make it my business to ask everybody since we're kind of tiptoeing around it anyway. Um, I, you know, we need diverse books as an organization that has existed, that was, that was forced to be created because traditional publishing, uh, like a lot of American institutions, I, I never like to point the finger at, at, at publishing and say, yeah, they're the one, um, <laughs> American institutions in general, but they do not have a great track record when it comes to inclusivity. Uh, so what are you seeing publishers doing to increase diversity in their offerings? And then also, what are you and the Tobias Literary Agency doing to increase diversity in those offerings? Um, I think it's a double-edged sword. I think diversity and inclusivity is important and necessary and much overdue. But you run into that publishers are a business. And for a lot of publishers, it's the appearances of it. I want black horror, except when you submit black horror, oh, this doesn't work for us. And it's not necessarily editors, because again, editors are like agents. We're on the front ground. It's sales and marketing. It's the big fat cats. Um, but as an agency, we promote um, diversity in that we're looking for that kind of stuff. We're looking to promote um, works by different cultures. Uh, I mean, I read an article of Jordan Peele where he said he would never tell another horror story with just some white dude. And uh, that's how I kind of feel in that, like, we've seen that. You know, and I, I want something different, want something new. Um, and it doesn't necessarily have to be by a person of color or whatever. I, I just want something new, interesting, and I think everyone deserves, has the right to see themselves on page, on screen. Um, and I think that's vitally important. And I also think it's vitally important to help support organizations that do that, even outside of publishing, which is why, you know, we do a lot of donations. We give to organizations that promote gender reassignment. Um, it's just, I, I think it's about being part of the solution as to being part of the problem or the, you know, status quo. And I also think it's important not to use inclusivity as talking points, as, you know, virtue signaling. Um, I mean, like for our quote unquote charities. I mean, we don't post that. We don't tweet about it because that's not the point of it. Um, I mean, if you do something and brag about it, it, it kind of defeats the purpose. Like I've seen in some agent 
contracts, which you know I may not should be saying, but they have a clause in which you have to thank them in the acknowledgments. And for me, that's kind of like that. If you don't want to thank me, I don't want your thanks. <laughs> it defeats the purpose because you're you're not actually thanking me. You're thanking me because you have to. That's a tangent I just went on, but you know, say la vie. Well, I mean, if I don't, if, if it's known that you're my agent and I don't thank you in my book, that sends a very definite signal to anybody that knows to look for it, right? I don't think so. I think some people just don't even think of it. Um, I mean, I honestly don't even look at the acknowledgments for clients' books. People have to remind me. They're like, oh, you're in the acknowledgments. I'm like, oh, that's cool. Um, I mean, I just, it's, I, I don't do it for the thanks. Um, the thanks is getting the book deal, getting to call a client saying, hey, we got an offer. I mean, that's the thanks. I spend months, if not years, talking to this person about the book and getting thank yous on the phone. And I mean, I think if you do something for the thank yous, you're doing it for the wrong reason. So um, I know you said elsewhere that you intend to be a literary agent forever if you if we can get away with it, right? You're not yes. you're not yearning to go back to medical coding. Oh, <laughs> as, no. as I, I wouldn't know what else to do with myself, honestly. I mean, and it's a job I just fell into. But you know, when you fall in love with something, you fall in love with something. So what is it that, that keeps you going with agenting, even as we're talking about the problem of the, the consolidation of publishers and some of the other um, headwinds uh, facing, facing authors and, and agents alike? What do you like about agenting? What keeps you passionate about, about it? Books, finding new stories. Um, yeah, I mean, you're creating, or the author, and you're helping curate a whole world, a whole new thing that may affect thousands, millions of people. If one person reads a book and it changes their life, I think that's a magical, powerful thing and incredibly worthwhile, even if I don't know about it, even if I never hear about it. I take solace in knowing that somewhere someone read a book that they love and maybe I had the opportunity to help form that book in however small a way. Like, for example, one of my favorite books is Night of the Black Rose by James Louder. I I've never spoken to James Louder. James Louder will never know. But that book means a lot to me. And I love that book. And, you know, it's one of my childhood treasures. I still have my copy from middle school that I read every year. So, I mean, I... You reread that one? Yeah, I reread that one every year. Um, and I think just having that in the back of my head, th that keeps me going. I mean, I just love books. Getting to talk about books, getting to read books, getting to help form books. Um, it's magical. What are uh, some other books that have uh, changed changed your life and that, that maybe make uh, your, your circulation for rereading? 
um, Frankenstein. I love Frankenstein. And I get flack for liking Frankenstein so much, but I, I, I mean, I did my thesis on Frankenstein. Um, my buddy oh, and anti Frankenstein people out there. I want their names. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny. My buddy and I both did our thesis on Frankenstein, and the professor was kind of like, "Why are you both doing it? Can one of you change it?" And both of us were like, "No, we're not changing." So and it turned into a whole big thing where we had to compare and contrast our theses beside to make sure we weren't doing the same subject. It was pretty funny. It was entertaining. Um, but yeah, that um, a lot of the Dragonlance novels, um, um, a lot of nonfiction too, a book called, I never remember the name, despite the fact I read it every year, called The Sunflower. Um, it's about forgiveness, and it's a lot of asking different clergy or people whether they would forgive the Nazis or not. And I know it's a weird, may seem like a weird subject to read, but I think, you know, reading about forgiveness and the different answers, I think that's a mind-opening thing and uh, you know mostly the jews are like no screw you and a lot of the you know non the non-jewish are like yeah we can see that so it's very interesting it tells you something about forgiveness well having uh, read it multiple times where are you at are you are you uh, on team forgiveness or not so much um the, people say you need to forgive because it's for you but i don't, I don't think so I mean, <laughs> I mean, I, I'm, I, when I get angry, I kind of forget about it. I'm just like, that takes too much energy, but you know, there's stuff I don't forgive and I just move on with my life. I'm not sitting around stewing about it. My mother always says in order to forgive someone, they have to apologize. So, I mean, I, I'm just not going to give you my forgiveness for my own sake. I just, you know, move on with my life. I'm not sitting around thinking about, I don't forgive this person. Yeah, fair enough. Why, why, why take up more of your time thinking about the terrible thing they've already done? Like, now we've got not just the terrible thing, but the burden of thinking about the terrible thing you did. <laughs> I'm sure everyone was expecting me to say, yes, I forgive. It's important to forgive. Yada, yada, yada. But no, I call bullcrap. <laughs> I think I'm mostly there on, on some things. Like Richard Sackler's not getting my forgiveness. Get out of here, guy. Oh, I know. <laughs> I, know. I think the best thing that they did was remove the Sackler name from all the museums. Because, you know, as a Jewish family, being Jewish, having your name erased is like a big thing. That's like huge. Because, you know, we say, May your uh, memory be a blessing. May your name be written in the book of life. And to erase someone's from the book of life or to erase their name, especially since so many of us died in the Holocaust without names, I think that's a huge blow. And I think, I bet you anything, they're more mad about that than losing their company. Well, that's that's a start. Um, yeah. I'd, I'd like to see, you know, the... the a few public executions wouldn't be the worst idea I've ever heard. <laughs> I would not be mad about that either. I'm a big fan of Schneidenfreud, if that's how you say it. 
Mm. That's uh, feeling uh, delight in someone else's uh, receiving of their their righteous. Yep, yep. shameful joy. Uh, I'm a big fan of shameful joy. <laughs> <Fair enough. laughs> well, I'm uh, watching our, our time, and it's 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 flown by. Where where does it go? Um, great conversations just just do that i've got a couple of questions one esteemed audience knows i have to ask because i ask everybody but then we'll start to think about landing this thing but everybody that comes on this show gets asked lane Haymont, have you ever seen a flying saucer and or a ghost yes and yes but i don't know if i necessarily believe i'm agnostic in most things in that i don't know i'm just some dude i mean what the hell do i know but i do believe i've seen a ghost and I have seen unexplained flying objects. That doesn't mean it was aliens. Okay, just out in a, you just happen to see something in the night sky that during the day. Yeah. What, uh, what happened? Yeah, lights. Like, oh, what the hell is that? It's probably a plane. Ah, but what do I know? It's still a UFO. There was one time my my girlfriend, then now my wife. Uh, spotted something strange in the sky, uh, probably a weather balloon. But she was uh, staring at, uh, standing there, at the end of the, my parents' driveway, and then my parents came out to stare with her. And then my brother comes out, my sister comes out. I'm standing beside her. We're all looking at this thing. Then the neighbors come out, and we're all looking at this thing. It's probably a weather balloon, but it's, it's it was almost a block party by the end. <laughs> Everybody was <laughs> One hell of a weather balloon. <laughs> Well, it was uh, moving, moving very strangely. Um, and then the ghost, uh, is the ghost story something you can share with us? Yeah, sure. Um, and I could be making this up from my childhood. I don't know. But I remember there was an old lady who lived up the street from us. She died. And I remember thinking, oh, that's so sad. She died. And then, you know, I look up from my bed and she's in my hallway. <laughs> we're kind of like what's going on here so i laid back down looked back up and she was gone and i was like oh man i must be crazy like this must have been a dream but you're not 100 percent convinced it was a dream no i'm not 100 percent convinced of anything fair enough <laughs> for all i know there are reptilians in the government putting computers in my brain i don't think so i think it's absolutely loony Looney Tunes, but you know. Well, if they did, the first thing they'd want to do is program it to, to make you forget that there are reptilians in the government putting chips in your brain. So, how would you know? <laughs> true, true. There you go. There you go. <laughs> These reptilians weren't born yesterday, my friend. They're, they're crafty. <laughs> That's very true. That's very true. I think I, I, I love conspiracy theories. Esteemed audience knows this. Um, because they give they give some context almost almost like religion, which um, you know at least the religion I was raised in Christianity um, has a very a very clear conspiracy theory. There is one evil dude, and he is the prince of the world, and he is secretly running everything. I mean that's that's the granddaddy of conspiracy is right there. But I I do love maybe the little bit of the comfort that that brings that we don't have to worry that much. The reptilian overlords have got this. Everything is proceeding according to their plan. I know, right? Um, not to get too political, but like vaccines, you know, they got it. They do. They're doing what they're doing. I trust the government to 
not want us all to die. Mm-hmm. Oh my God, and what a what a wonderful thing it is. I'm just th- I was uh at the movies just last night. I've, I'm vaccinated, my wife's vaccinated, my son's just had his first by the time this airs, so he'll have had his second shot. Uh so I, I went to see Ghostbusters in a theater, and the mall across the street was packed with 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 cars with people doing their holiday shopping. As compared to this time last year where we were all just home. Oh my god, I think Christmas is gonna happen this year. It's <laughs> how wonderful. How was Ghostbusters? Was it good? Oh, it was. It, it, I think mileage varies depending on on your level of fandom. But oh. I was a kid in the '80s who had the you know the proton pack and, and went around hunting ghosts. And this yeah. was just. It would be my if it weren't the year of the Snyder Cut. It would be my favorite movie of the year because it was every childhood dream I ever had. What if you could find your grandpa's proton pack and go bust ghosts? Oh my god, how wonderful! Awesome. I'm super excited for it. Are you, uh, you have fur plans to, to head out and see us when you can? No, I, I'm not going to the theaters. I, I'm super reclusive, paranoid about the coronavirus, despite the fact I'm completely vaccine, vaccinated. I just, I don't know, you know, my mom's 75. Uh, I just don't want to get sick and pass it on to someone. Um, well, in all fairness, I went to a 4.30 Thursday show. So I wanted to make sure I got in there before the, the weekend crowds were, were, were packed. So there, I was one of, I think, 12 people in the theater. So I, I understand okay. the, the hesitancy. I'm still, you know, I'm not ready for midnight showing a Spider-Man yet. <laughs> right? Oh, man. Which yeah. sucks. I know the spoilers are going to be on Twitter the moment after it happens. And I'll, I'll just have to take that chance to see it during the weekday when uh, nobody else is there yeah i've had to step back twitter mainly because of turfs from last year but just because you know with the mandalorian and dope sick and ahsoka and kenobi coming up i i I can't see any spoilers and that's all twitter is it's all spoilers spoiling something yeah, I understand the impulse that if you know something exciting that you know everybody else wants to know and you want to share it immediately. But at the same time, I can't remember the last time I, I saw like a big major motion picture where you didn't know everything going in. Like nine mm. times out of ten, you you could sample one scene from all of every action scene in the movie that's already in the trailer. You know what you know what you're getting. Yep, true, true. I've seen trailers for movies and I'm like, oh now I don't have to watch a movie. To get all the best parts. I think there should be a separate category of Academy Award just for movie trailers. Because there have been a number of bad movies I've seen where the trailer was just amazing. Oh, they, I should have gone to the theater and just played the trailer again. That, that was two minutes mm. of really incredible filmmaking. Like the Suicide Squad comes to mind. The movie, eh. But that trailer for the Suicide not, not the Suicide Squad, the, the, the second one was great. The original Suicide Squad with, with Will Smith. That first trailer, mwah, Look, or the trailer for the Dark Tower. Oh my God, the movie not so great, but that trailer just incredible. Yeah, the first Suicide Squad was a bomb. Um, wow, what a really bad movie. Yes. If any, if I know anyone who's worked on it, I apologize. But you know, Harley Quinn came out of that, so it did something right. Oh, there are whole stretches of the movie that are they're very watchable. 
exactly. <laughs> what's her name? Amanda Waller from. Uh, oh, what's the actress? Uh, oh, my, Viola my Davis. Viola Davis. Yes, she is amazing in that role. Yeah, yeah, she's fantastic. She's absolutely amazing. Yeah. I thought Killer Croc looked pretty good. So, you know, many, many positives. I love Killer Croc. There for the movie. When they had Harley Quinn singing and they were showing everything in slow motion, like, oh my God, and Batman's going to be in it. That was so filled with possibilities. It could have been anything. In some I ways, I wish I had never seen the movie. I was still just dreaming of the trailer. What a, what a wonderful world that was. <laughs> <laughs> right before reality set in. My uh, final question for you, and then I'll let you go because you've been so generous with your time and I, I want to be respectful. But my final question uh, is, is always some variation of if there was one bit of advice, or as many bits of advice uh, as you like, that every author listening to us or watching to us would take to heart and might make easier their path going forward, what would you tell them? Keep writing. Um, I think there's nothing sadder or more sadder Sadder? I don't know. There's something, nothing more sadder than a story untold. And I know that sounds super cheesy, but it's absolutely true. Fair enough. Uh, where can esteemed audience find you online, follow you on social media and all that good stuff? Um, you can find me on Instagram and Twitter at Lane Haymont. Uh, you can find me on TikTok, which I've just got onto at Super Lit Agent 18, um, and always at the TobiasAgency.com. Hi, and as always, esteemed audience, for more interviews like this with all the world's best people, head to MiddleGradeNinja.com, download your free copy of Manicure Bones and the Giant Robot Bees, and download your free copy of the Book of David, Chapter 1. And God willing, I'm alive. I'll see you next week.